I'm Leslie. And I'm Steph. And this is Church Historia. In this episode, we're going to travel west a little bit and into Europe. And we're going to do a fairly quick pass through of early medieval history. And specifically, we're going to use Charlemagne as our central focal point and how he came to be and the legacy of his reign. But we're going to look a lot at the interplay in the early medieval period between secular power and religious leadership and that kind of blending of the two and the two mutually reinforcing each other and also kind of struggling to be the one who's really in charge. And the implication of of things like feudalism and these sorts of structures within communities, within societies that then give rise to local churches and all sorts of things like that. And what does that look like and sound like? And there's a guy who's short in the middle of all of it. So that's a very exciting thing to be looking forward to. So yeah, let's let's talk about Charlemagne and the West. The last three episodes we've been talking about the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Roman Empire as they understood it. We're going to switch our focus for the next couple episodes to the Western Roman Empire and start with its fall. So we should probably really be talking about Europe at this point. Okay. And the early medieval period, late 5th century through the 10th century. And the medieval period in Europe is really this intersection of Roman culture, Christian culture, and Germanic culture. Mm-hmm. It's kind of these three ingredients that come together in different ways in different parts of Europe, but kind of overall we do see these three interacting and that gets us to what we now recognize as the Middle Ages. But to get from late antiquity into the Middle Ages, that thing that ushers that in is the fall of Rome. And, you know, there has been much written and much said about what led to the fall of Rome. So this is going to be a short (laughs) Very, very short version of that. You are welcome and encouraged to fall as deep down that rabbit hole as you would like. There's a few things that are going on with this Western part of the Roman Empire that are causing it some struggles. So we have this increased Gothic threat from Mm, these various Germanic tribes. And I actually learned yesterday that the term goth Mm -hmm. for us comes from the Goths, who were a Germanic tribe, and the Visigoths, who so were a Germanic tribe. So it does come from that. So, yep. Interesting. Um, so that is, that does have Did its Did they roots. wear dark clothing and I have dark don't, hair? I don't know. I wish, mm. I wish I knew more. Okay. But these tribes are many, and they are disparate. So we really have to talk about the Germanic tribes, plural, and then get really specific, because we can't really talk about them doing anything together. So, because they weren't. So we have the Franks in Gaul, the Ostrogoths in Italy, the Almani in Germany, the Visigoths in Spain, the Vandals in North Africa. Those are some of the the big ones. The Franks, where is Gaul? Where is modern day Gaul? France. France. Oh, Franks. Okay, well, that checks out. Yep. And so as they've come down through Central and Eastern Europe and down into all of these areas, they start encountering... Rome. And so some of them join the Roman military. Some of the tribes become kind of border states to the Roman Empire where they're they're technically within the auspices of the 
Roman Empire, but like they get a little bit more autonomy because their goal is to kind of defend that borderline. Mm. But they really start to change the makeup of the Roman military because their identity is not as Romans and the glory of Rome right. now. The Roman military has been really picky for a lot of its history to cultivate that that loyalty to Rome, that pride right. in Rome. And so this group, they're Visigothian or Franks. Their identity is elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a little bit of a weakening of the ethos of the Roman army. Along with all of that, there's some economic decline going on in the Roman Empire um, in late antiquity. Some really expensive wars, lots of government spending, read corruption Mm. in there as well. Heavy reliance on slavery for labor. It's important to note that like generational slavery as it manifests itself in the United States is very different than this type of slavery. It's not generational, or at least not in the same way. And so it kind of constantly needs this input, which means you constantly have to be conquering people, which is really expensive. So that doesn't work super well. It's huge. So administratively, that's really difficult. Lots of political corruption in that size and everybody getting to do their own thing because there's nobody really watching them or holding them in check. So there's... A lot of little things that start to weaken Rome from what it was, say, under Caesar or Augustus. And so then one of the big dates, because we want to give a date to the end of the Roman Empire, Hmm. 410 is often used. And that's when the Visigoths sack Rome itself. So the city Single-handedly, the Visigoths. Yep. So it's kind of weakened enough by that point, and they're strong enough that they sack Rome in 410. In 476, Odoker, who is a Germanic chieftain, deposes the emperor Romulus Augustus, and there's no Roman emperor who rules from Italy again. Mm. Again, people are probably tired of me saying, Byzantine Empire says we have an emperor, and we're Roman, but no one is ruling from Uh Italy, from Rome again. So Hmm. between 410 and 476, you can kind of look at those as both end dates for the Roman Empire, if you want. And I think we had mentioned this in the episode about Constantine, but about theology mattering on how, who has what position and and how you treat each other. And so Arian Christianity had spread to the Germanic tribes first. So a lot of the Germanic tribes right. were Arian. We did. We talked about this because they were coming down around the Roman Empire while that while that council was kind of happening and while that theology was being set. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't following this. Correct. Yeah, know. they didn't really care about Constantine's right. unified. Right. Whatever. Okay. So Theodoric takes over from Odeker in 493, and he's pretty well received, but he's an Arian Christian. Hmm. So he's a contemporary with Justinian, Justinian and Theodora. Okay, got it. And Justinian starts persecuting Arian Christians in his empire because Uh they're a radical splinter group and he's aiming for unity. Mm -hmm. So in turn, Theodoric asks the Pope to intervene. Pope doesn't intervene. And so Theodoric just begins persecuting (laughs) Nicene following Christians in his empire. Interesting. So one way to bring unity is just start persecuting people. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if everybody's terrified to do the other thing, then maybe they... Maybe they won't. Logic doesn't really work, but mm-hmm. you know they're trying. 
So again, I, I tell that story to say theology has practical implications. This is not a, whatever you do in your own home is fine. We are blank and you will follow because yeah. that is what we do. For all the things we've been talking about, the importance of unity, the importance of a cohesive front, the importance of saving people's eternal souls, all of that. Well, and that's, that seems to have changed because the very first episode when we talked about Constantine, the rule that they made was just made Christianity legal, but it was still very, like, open. You didn't have to follow Christianity. It opened the door for a lot of different religions. So that seems to have changed since Constantine. Yes, yeah, and... You know, so that's Edict of Milan is 315 by 380. Nicene Christianity is officially the Roman mm-hmm. Christianity. Again, Theodoric here is Germanic, so he hasn't really cared that Nicene Christianity has been the, the dominant. So yeah. again, with that kind of overlapping of cultures and spheres, uh, we can absolutely see that here. So we have the, the fall of Rome. As we get into the Middle Ages, one of the defining characteristics of it and one of the really impactful ways that society was structured is this idea of feudalism, which is a system where a lord grants a fief to a vassal in return for military service on horseback. Can you break down fief and vassal? Yep. So a fief is a plot of land that can then be subdivided. Okay. The vassal is the subordinate. And that okay. relationship. Essentially, you give me a plot of land and you say, hey, Stephanie, you can you can rent this land, but you owe me 40 days of, oh. mili- of military service on horseback. Okay. Well, that means that I have to be wealthy enough to have a horse. Oh, yeah. As we break this down okay. further, feudal- feudalism often sits alongside manorialism, which maybe that fief gets broken down a little bit more. I say, hey, you know what? This feast's really big. I'm going to break it down to a couple of other people who then become my vassals. Okay. And they each have their own manor, and ultimately the land is worked by peasants or serfs. But when you call me to come help you militarily, and I don't want to go, I might call on my people to come do it instead. So there's these relationships okay. that are structured on this idea of homage and fealty. So loyalty and then, like, I'm going to say respect in quotes that are owed back to that loyalty. That also means that when you come by and you say, hey, I'm going to hang out here for two months with my retinue of 30 people. You will house and feed us for two months. I have to say yes. Okay. So that's very much this structure of this idea of you have somebody in that position of lord who ha- yeah, okay. has stuff who is going to, loosely speaking, lease it to somebody else in this exchange of my fealty, my loyalty for your benevolence, benevolence, essentially. What this means then for the structures of power is now we're starting to get generational wealth, generational Mm. power. There's a really clear class system here. So Mm -hmm. we can really start to talk about dukes and earls and that nobility. But also that loyalty is very, I'm going to say vertical. It's not the nationalism that we know today, right? No one has an idea of being French at this point or being British. I am the vassal of so-and-so who is the vassal of so-and-so and such and such. And maybe eventually we get to kind of a top person, but yeah, okay. my loyalty is really to you. 
Mm-hmm. Whatever the people above you are doing or saying is less relevant to me until it gets to you and then trickles down to Got me. Got it. Okay. So that is very much shaping how this is being structured, but again, also starting to establish this generational wealth and nobility in Europe. So one of the other things that being lord over this land and getting to distribute land lets you do is the lords often give what are called glebes, which is land to the church. Glebes. Yes. Hmm, good fun, a nice word. Good fun word. Mm-hmm. And so when you do that as the lord, you can appoint the priest. So this is how a lot of like local oh. congregations, local parishes are going to get started of, I hereby give this plot of land for the building of a church. And also I like that guy so he can be the priest in my community. Okay. So it's... Very hard, aka impossible, in medieval Europe to separate secular politics from religious leadership, religious structures, Mm -hmm. because they Mm -hmm. are, right, Mm -hmm. if you as a lord get to pick the priest, then you're going to pick the priest whose theology you agree with the most, and you're not going to pick the one who doesn't. Also, they have a vested interest in keeping you happy. Also, 20% of nobility goes into the church, Mm -hmm. and... In our final episode this season, we're going to talk about monasticism, and that is a career path for the fourth, fifth sons who aren't going to inherit. That's another career path option for them. And being a holy person, I think in really almost all traditions globally, gives you a a position of power, whether that's official power or just kind of communal power that's a respected thing um, Mm -hmm. in communities. So... Nobility is going into the church. There's this idea of oblates of children dedicated into the service of the church. Again, those fourth, fifth sons, daughters as well. And when your parents drop you off at the monastery and says, hello, monastery, will you please raise my child? That often comes with a donation. Ah. Here is a lot of money, track of land, It sounds like you're not just saying that they are dedicating their child's life to the church. It sounds like they are dedicating, like they give their child up. Um, Is it that dramatic or is it? I mean, you're probably not going to see your child, but the child will have a choice when they come of age to either join the monastery, take vows or not. It's not 100% that they will have to go into the church, but... Would you do that because you couldn't afford to feed them? That's one reason, yeah. Yeah, okay. Then you don't have to feed them, but also then they're raised in that tradition and... Taken care of. Yeah, and then you have a family connection in... Into the church. Into the church gotcha. as well. So a couple other kind of interesting things of this this blending of nobility and church politics. And, and not all oblates were rich people's children, but it was, again, common. But kind of an interesting statistic, 90% of medieval churches were private churches. So they were built and funded privately. Not attended privately. Not attended privately, but built okay. privately. Okay. Again, because when you think of land being broken down in this kind of feudal way, there's not like a neutral. Right. There's not like a government system happening. Yeah. There's not a, yeah, there's not a, a track of land that's governed elsewise to yeah. sort of be given this way. So mm. I just that was a statistic I had come across that I thought was an interesting one about people building these churches for a variety of reasons, including personal piety that, mm-hmm. you know, David 
wanted to build the temple and like why would you not yeah. you know dedicate this house to god if you have the means to do so interesting so that's a little bit of the background of this early medieval period but let's let's do some king stuff king stuff so we're going to start with king pepin the short no way yes short yes. literally because he was short yes well all right that's yes. the medieval good. period was great at nicknames <laughs> I just I picture everybody talking about him and then they say his full name and everybody just laughs and then they continue on talking about King Pepin. So real quick question. Why in some places is it emperor and some places it's king? Like what is the. That is a great question. So we don't. So emperor implies an empire which is bigger than a kingdom. Ah. And so at this point Europe does not have an emperor. It has chieftains, it has princes, principalities, it has kings. The kingdom's boundaries are a little squishy right now because there's still lots of conquering and Mm counter-conquering and all that. But there is not an empire being that kind of larger, almost in some ways kind of multinational Gotcha. Okay. So it really comes down to what what is the type of community that you're leading Empire is more of a massive, defined thing that has a lot of different parts and pieces to it, and kingdom is a smaller. Yeah, I think that's probably a good okay. working. That's a, a good working definition. Down. Okay, for so us. King King Pepin. So King Pepin. So King Pepin, from the very beginning of his reign on, has a very close relationship with the Church in Rome, and it's worth noting. So Pepin is a, is Frank. Okay. So he comes to the throne in seven forty seven, and appeals to the Pope to ask the Pope for support for his ascension to the throne. I'm pretty sure he murdered the guy who's on the throne before him. Happens a lot. But the Pope does. So the Pope is like, yep, Pepin, you're cool. So we look at the Pope for a second. The Pope is kind of struggling because Rome got sacked in 410, but that's not the only time it got sacked. So we have another Germanic tribe called the Lombards who have conquered Ravenna in 751, which... Ravenna is a, a big city in Italy. It's a big deal. It's technically part of the Byzantine Empire in 751. Oh. And it also has a lot of churches there and a city of kind of strong religious importance. And so the Pope reaches out to Constantine V and says, hey, help. <laughs> <laughs> and Constantine V basically says, I am too busy fighting a war in Bulgaria. Good luck. <laughs> So the Pope is Meanwhile, at this point, like months, maybe even years are passing between this conversation. Hey, probably That's what probably months. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't think we're quite in the years, but like okay. months. Yeah. 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 So the Pope instead turns to the Franks and Pepin for support because hmm. the Lombards take Ravenna and then they turn their eyes to Rome. And they do, in fact, also conquer Rome in, in 752. So a year later, they've taken over Rome and they're demanding tribute of um, one gold coin per per capita, so per person. And the Pope reaches out to Pepin and is like, please, please help. <laughs> we do not want to be under the control of the Lombards and paying them this tax. And, you know, historians kind of point to this as a big deal because it, the Pope at this point, stops looking to the East for support and protection Mm -hmm. and starts, and Rome, and starts looking towards the West 
and other Germanic tribes for support, specifically the Franks. So it takes a little while, but ultimately the Franks defeat the Lombards in 756 and kind of restore the freedom of the city of Rome. And the Pope is so thankful that he offers Pepin money for saving Rome. And Pepin says, no, 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 I could I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly take your <laughs> gift. It it belongs to St. Peter and it belongs to the church. And Pepin gives essentially the money and and it's really money in the form of land back to the Pope. Okay. This is a really, really big deal because hmm. this is establishes a temporal plot of kingdom, plot of land of which the Pope rules over. Ah. So this becomes the foundation of the papal state. Ah, and so okay. now the Pope is not just kind of in Rome. Rome is an awesome holy city, yay. But like this is now the Pope's territory mm. that he hmm. is in charge of. Mm-hmm. And so this, this establishment of the papal states is a huge, huge deal. Yeah. I'm guessing, extrapolating, foreshadowing, it's the reason why Rome is the way it is now. Yeah, and, and the Vatican the City Church, is its Vatican own yeah. its own independent yeah. thing. Yeah. It goes all the way back to this. Yep. And you can thank Pepin, thank you, Pepin for the Vatican. Pepin the Short. Yep. So Pepin has a son, Charles, who will become Charlemagne, Charles the Great. And so oh. we will just refer to him as Charlemagne. Well, no, I didn't know that. Yes. Okay. So Charlemagne takes over as king. He's doing really well. He conquers a lot of land. And he has this kind of vision of creating this Christian empire. And he's constantly issuing decrees on ecclesiastical policy and doctrine. And he's trying to get everybody unified on the same page and really create this Christian empire. So I think we can draw a lot of parallels here to Justinian and what Justinian was trying to do. But before he gets to his empire, as we were just talking about, you have to get from king to emperor. And so how mm-hmm. does that how does that happen? Well, there's a a few things for context before we actually get to the coronation. So this is the late 700s. And so this is right about the time that Irene and Constantine VI are having their back and forth power struggle yep. and Irene becomes emperor. Mm-hmm. And that's not a universally accepted thing because some people have issues with a woman being on the throne. Ah, so in theory, that means that the throne is technically empty. And so the Roman emperorship okay. is open. There's also a document that gets floated around that was probably a forgery called the Donation of Constantine, which allegedly records arrangements made by Constantine the first, so Constantine. The very one. The Constantine. Okay. After he is converted to Christianity and when he goes to leave Italy, that he gives the Pope the power to bestow the imperial title and imperial control over the Western part of the empire. So... In theory, Constantine says, I have converted to Christianity. Dear Pope, I entrust you with the importance of naming the leader of the Western part of the Roman Empire. Ah, because he's Because I'm going east. east. Right. I, I'm going to go establish Constantinople. So that's where that came from. Okay. So, again, likely a forgery, but it sets this precedent that mm. the Pope can now fill the 
Got it. Vacant Roman emperor seat. So the Pope, who's Leo III, not to be confused with our uh, Leo III, mm-hmm. who was emperor, but this Pope Leo III uses this and basically ambushes Charlemagne to crown him Holy Roman Emperor Okay, on, on Christmas Day in 800. So Charlemagne is going to church to celebrate Christmas service. And in the middle of the service, the Pope magically produces a crown and sticks it on his head and says something along the lines of, to Charles, the most pious Augustus, crowned by God, the great and peace-giving emperor, life and victory. This proclamation was made three times, and then now Charlemagne has been elevated, it's been promoted from king to... This is the second time in this season that someone has been ambushed in some way on Christmas Day in church. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess the lesson here is if you are in political leadership, maybe be careful on On Christmas Christmas service. At your Christmas service. (laughs) You might get more than you bargained for. Always look over your shoulder. Yeah. So there's, you know, the records say that Charlemagne was surprised and didn't know what was going to happen and was kind of like, no, I don't want this, but I guess I have it, so we'll keep it. I don't know. I feel like it's a little hard to ambush crown someone. Indeed. Maybe. I've, I've never done it. I don't know how easy or, or difficult it might be. And you weren't there again. Yeah. So. But I also think there is something to be said for, we kind of love a leader who doesn't want to be a leader, who's kind of forced into that position. A little bit of an underdog. A little bit of an underdog. So... You know, either way, Constantine keeps this title. The Byzantine Empire is pissed because the Pope is just declaring people emperor and Roman emperor when they're the Roman emperors. And right. So it, it puts some strain on the East-West. And this, you know, some scholars will count this as like the biggest moment of the medieval period because oh, really? this... The Holy Roman Empire, which the joke is was neither Holy Roman nor an empire, but the Holy <laughs> Roman Empire as it was lasts... Until 1806. Oh, wow. So that's a thousand and six years. Yes. So 800 to 1806. So, and this idea of an emperor crowned by the Pope becomes really important. And this kind of co-blessing and appointment that we'll start to see between popes and emperors and who gets to anoint who. We're not going to talk about some of the papal controversies, but at a certain point, there are three popes because you have different kings all anointing different popes at the same time and nobody mm. can agree and it it gets really messy in the in the later period but regardless Constantine shoulders this heavy burden of emperorship and goes on to rocket he's <laughs> there there is a reason he becomes charlemagne the great the great and one of the major things that he gives us is called the Carolingian Renaissance, and this emphasis on education. He was really, really big on educational reform. He spoke his native language, also was fluent in Latin, spoke decent Greek. All of his children were incredibly educated, including his daughters. He really elevated the position of scholars and teachers and promoted the creation of books, right? Because right now, books are on vellum. They're being written by hand. There's nothing fast about producing a book, but this is when we start to see rise of monasteries that are dedicated to the copying of books. And then that's going to become a really big deal. Alcan of York is appointed by Charlemagne to help create this 
education system that is built off seven liberal arts, big ones, which are grammar and rhetoric. It's going to set the foundation for what will become the monastic universities that give us our modern universities. I mean, this is huge. Like this educational reform that comes out under Charlemagne, there's an artistic change. The Carolingian font is really kind of the basis for like type print. It's much easier to read Carolingian calligraphy than almost anything that comes before it. Like it looks the most familiar to us, to our kind of alphabet. So like this is a huge, huge amount of stuff that's going on under Charlemagne. And also, again, this defense of the Christian faith, this push towards unity. So he's pushing through a lot of church reform as well. And so he establishes a singular liturgy throughout the entire empire. And it's the direct ancestor of the liturgy used in Roman Catholic churches today. And he's going to push for Latin as the unified language and everybody being on the same, especially Latin as the the core of that liturgy. The the things that he starts and the things that he sets as precedent are are the foundation for what comes next. All the other people we're talking about, there's there's almost this instability in what they were doing. But this, this... he creates He's a lot. very stable. Yes, he creates a lot of stability, and it really is a high point. Unfortunately, it doesn't last. His intention was to split his empire into three kingdoms. Still one empire, but like, he had three sons, and they could oh. each rule, rule over a part of it, and that all but one of his sons die before him. So oh. it doesn't fracture yet. It fractures soon thereafter. The general rule of thumb, never divide your empire. It's never going to come back together. <laughs> Diocletian does it with Rome, never comes back together. Charlemagne happens soon after his, his death, never comes back together. But this idea of empire and of, of this stability and of this intellectual and artistic mm-hmm. flourishing, pe- people really like that idea. And they mm-hmm. hold on to that idea. And you know the, the smaller kingdoms and, and principalities are going to try to recreate that for themselves. I did want to highlight one of the things that happens under his son, Louis the Pious. And it wasn't so much what Louis did himself, but he really helped sponsor a lot of monastic reform under Benedict of a name. Again, apologies for mispronouncing place names, but Benedict revamps the rule of St. Benedict, which is a monastic rule for how monastic communities work. And he essentially increases the number of hours per day that monks are going to be spending praying and doing the liturgy. Oh. And the cost of that increase of prayer is a decrease of manual labor. And we will talk a lot about this in episode six, but that really starts to shift power dynamics about what is work, what is holy work, who is doing what work. And a lot of the rest of the medieval period is going to be a series of monastic reforms around this question of, are you doing enough work? Have you gotten soft? Are you hmm. are you living this ascetic life of dedication? Hmm. So kind of interesting to see right, right after Constantine, we have this change. So that brings us through the end of the early medieval period. The rest of the medieval period is broken into two chunks. The high medieval period, which is roughly the 11th century through the 13th century. And then the late medieval period, which is roughly the 13th century to the 16th century. So I'm going to spiel through those real quick because I feel I feel bad leaving them out. Um, <laughs> this is a great struggle of historians is you can never talk about everything and you always have to choose. Um, mm. And I didn't like that I had to choose to leave this out. So 
So you're not gonna. I'm not gonna. We're gonna give a quick overview of some of the important things that are going on. So I just mentioned all of this reform under Benedict that was increasing this amount of time of praying and reducing the amount of time for work. Well, eventually we're gonna see some responses against that in the high medieval period. And we're gonna see the Cistercians, which become one of the biggest orders in Europe. Then a couple of centuries after they get started, we're gonna see the rise of the mendicant orders. So most of the orders before that stay inside their cloistered walls, their you know, closed off community. The mendicants are gonna be out in the world. So the mendicants are the Franciscans, the Carmelites, the Dominicans, the Augustinians. So a lot of those orders that we might recognize today. Yeah, um, that's who, very familiar sounding. Yeah, who go go out and do mm-hmm. things, right? Those are the mendicant orders. Some other things that folks might have heard of. The Crusades. Oh, yes, the happening Crusades. Happening during this time. That would be interesting to the, talk about. There are many Crusades, which is really interesting. There's also, like, the Children's Crusade, where, like, several mm-hmm. thousand children just walk barefoot across Europe and put themselves on boats and go to the Holy Land. With Terrifying. no adult yep. supervision? Yep. They just self-organized themselves. You were the kidding. No. How did they do this? Uh, I think they just started walking. And nobody's nobody's parent was looking for them. I. Yeah. I'm writing that down because I want to know more. The Norman Conquest. So really big deal in the history of... England and the history of English as a language. And then also there's this shift towards urbanization. So we start to see the rise of cities. So we're going from this feudal structure to having towns that are growing bigger and becoming more independent and ultimately form cities. So they have a wall and a bishop. That's what makes you a city. We start to see the rise of a middle class with spending power. So that does some interesting things to trade and money. Also politically, that's really different because these people don't have their loyalty to their lord. They don't mm-hmm. have a lord. That's one of the advantages of a city is they're, in, they're given the ability to run independently. Their loyalty is to the king. Ah. And so we start to see the rise of a national identity and that mm. kind of loyalty to your king and to your country. And that's starting to form as an idea. So that's pretty a pretty big deal. The other things that happens in this period is the Great Schism of 1054, where the Catholic Pope and the Patriarch of Constantinople mutually excommunicate each other over a debate about the leavening agent in the Eucharist. This is this is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. These two churches have been drifting apart for years, right. years and years and years. And then this debate over the Eucharist is the final, the final straw. And they mutually mm. excommunicate each other. And kind of from this point on. So how did that go? I'm excommunicating you. No, no, I'm excommunicating you. Fine, fine. And that was that. Basically. Yeah, that's a a pretty pretty good reenactment. (laughs) Uh, Just just in written form. Again, I wasn't there. You weren't there, but essentially in written form. Okay, got it. (laughs) And then, so the late medieval period, we have the Black Death and the just sheer volume of death that comes as a part of that kind of resets Europe in some ways and makes getting access to wealth more feasible. So we also start to see a lot of peasant revolts and the end of the feudal structure. And we also see the growth of universities and the introduction of the printing press yeah. as well. So this period ends Lots of that. with the Renaissance. The Renaissance, yeah. Um, so very much a period of transition. 
you hear the term crusades yeah. and you think about Christians killing people. Yeah. You know, that's one of the main things that it's like, well, the crusades were a bad thing because Christians just went around killing people that didn't believe what they believed. So we were talking yesterday about kind of how do you hold these incompatible ideas. And so, like, you have this ideal that says you have to be good at military things to be a man in power. Mm -hmm. But then you also have Bible saying, do not kill. And you're just saying, turn the other <laughs> cheek. And yeah. they struggle so much with, you know, you think about knighthood and the code of chivalry and this, uh -huh. this ethics to live by about you're supposed to be, you know, kind to the little poor old lady, but right. also like do these heroic feats. And, you know, it's nice when you're in an Arthurian legend and you can go battle a mythical beast. That's great because that doesn't hurt anybody. But like practically... There's only so much questing you can do for mythical beats. So <laughs> what, what does your average knight do to prove that they are worthy? Well, killing other Christians, is that's really, like, again, Bible's, Bible's pretty clear. <laughs> and, like, church history's pretty clear, like, you can't kill other Christians. So that's why we start to see the rise of tournaments, mm. right? Because you can compete at feats of arms. Just making up games. Right, but, like, maybe not kill each other. Yeah. Well, then you have this oh no, the holy city has been overrun by the Islamic empire. We need to go save it. Yeah. Okay, I can go prove that I am really good at my military stuff by going in, what is more noble than going and protecting the holy city? Uh-huh. Okay, so we're protecting the holy city. To do that, we have to kill people. It's less directly about <laughs> killing, uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. Right, right, two sides of the same coin. You right. can't, you can't right. take back a city without killing people. But it's not a like... We are not going specifically to kill people. We are going to. And whatever needs to be done for our goal to be reached, we will do it. If that includes killing people, so be it. Correct. And then you have the, like, great, we conquered, we, you know, we got it back. But then, well, now you have the Orthodox Christians who are heretics. And, and then you have, you know, quote unquote, freed the city for Christians. But then, like, you think the, those Christians who are there are heretics. So, like. I mean, ultimately, like, the fall of the Byzantine Empire is directly related to European Christians coming in and killing Byzantine Christians over the Holy Land. So, like, is it deeply problematic? Yes. Things that I think are interesting and why just throwing this blanket, Christians killed people in the Crusades, is it's not wrong. It's just not as interesting as gotcha. what actually happened. Is because you do have things like the Children's Crusades. And you have... Peasants, like you, this idea of pilgrimage to the Holy Land, it's a huge deal. You have children walking thousands of miles across Europe to go to the Holy Land. Like, wh what level of religious <laughs> conviction do you need to have as a nine-year-old mm -hmm. to go walk across Europe? They're not sponsored. They're relying these on the generosity of others. These are children who have been given to the monastery. So it's not like these are children who are raised. No, and this, this is not a church-sponsored field trip. So, like, this is a very <laughs> self-funded, you know, effort of relying on the generosity of strangers, the power of prayer. Like, this is insane. It's absolutely insane. Children. But how, you know, how deep of a conviction of the importance of going to the Holy Land, visiting the Holy Land, and, and being there... Like how strong does that conviction have to be to, to do that? To do that, right, right. And then the other thing that I find really interesting is some knights who come back from the Crusades are so tore up about what they've done in the Crusades that when they come back, they feel the need to repent. The Bible's really explicit about not killing. 
you've got this sort of Christian morality on one side, and then you've got this military yeah. prowess and these things that you've done. And a lot of them commission the building of churches as acts of penance. Some of them renounce all their wealth and just wander barefoot or wander. I guess legend has it that many of them were barefoot. But then they, they kind of become wandering beggars for the rest of their lives as a form of penance. And I've only scratched the surface of of the Crusades, but they are a very interesting, very complex yeah, wow, thing because there's not just one. There's lots of different groups participating and people have really conflicted feelings about yeah. what they're doing and, and what happens when they come back. So fascinating. That's really interesting to hear. Fascinating subject. So I would, okay. I would encourage people to not take the Crusades as a monolith. Again, I'm not condoning large-scale violence here. I just think that when we get into more of the details around it and get into more of the nuances, I think it helps us understand ourselves better and understand, how, you know, how could this happen? Because like I said, Christianity for a lot of its history is not not pacifist. You know, m most of the medieval period we're talking about, there is constant warring going on. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so the ways in which that warring is understood within a, a Christian theological context is, is a constant, constant conversation. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Church Historia. We really appreciate you joining us on this journey. If you want more, you can always check on our website at churchhistoria.com where you can join our email list. And do be sure you subscribe to this show on your platform of choice so that you will always know when we have a new episode. And as always, if you enjoy what we do, we'd love it if you would share it with others as well. So if you like it, spread the word, tell your friends. We would be so grateful. Thanks so much. Thanks.